0: Let's turn to Obadiah chapter 1 then. Obadiah comes right after Amos and before Jonah. It's a one-chapter book. (coughs) Excuse me. All this changing weather within the change of weather kind of gets you. There's some important facts as you're turning there that I want to kind of bring up here tonight uh, before we begin the study. Uh, Primarily... Uh, We we touched only bits and pieces last week, or two weeks ago actually, uh, dealing with Obadiah. Obadiah is the smallest book in the Hebrew Scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament. Uh, It's only a one-chapter book. There's uh, 21 verses in in the chapter. The name Obadiah, as I mentioned last time, uh, means servant of the Lord, But it also means one who worships the Lord or worshiper of the Lord. So when you consider the fact that we are to be servants of the Lord, realize that our service is worship unto God. And so the name Obadiah makes that uh, clear and, and certainly encouraging to us to remember that the God that we worship is also the God that we serve. Now, the date of the prophecy I didn't give last time, <clears throat> and it is a little bit, not, not so much confusing, as, as it is uh, hard to nail down. Uh, commentators for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, have sought to nail down when Obadiah may have written this. We didn't get a lot of information at the beginning of the, uh, of the letter, uh, especially since the very first sentence says, The Vision of Obadiah... And then goes right into, thus saith the Lord. So not much is known about the the prophecy itself. But uh, it was a prophecy that was called forth by a plunder of Jerusalem. In which Edom, the country or the nation that is being judged and and spoken to, uh, participated They participated in the plunder of Jerusalem. The one thing we do need to know and understand is that Edom was was an arch enemy of Israel. And we'll talk about that a little bit more tonight. But the four plunderings, there were four plunderings that took place. The plundering of Jerusalem. The first one, people believe that this could have been the time that Obadiah wrote this prophecy would have been the earliest being during the reign of Jehoram, who reigned from 850 to 843 B.C. So that that would make Obadiah probably one of the oldest books if he actually wrote it back then. Uh, you can read about that plundering in 2 Chronicles chapter 21. And then the reign of uh, Amaziah would be the second plundering of, of Jerusalem, Uh and Amaziah ruled in 803 to 775 B.C. You can read about that plundering in Second Chronicles chapter 25. The third plundering of Jerusalem, and, and by the way, Edom actually assisted in all of these particular plunderings, if, if that's really a word. I know plunder is, uh, but they plundered uh, uh, Jerusalem. The third would be the reign during the reign of Ahaz who reigned from 741 to 726 BC. You read about him in 2nd Chronicles 28, and you read about the plundering of Jerusalem at that time. The one that we should take the most note of would be the fourth, which would be the during the reign of Zedekiah. That was the last king of uh, of uh, Judah. The reign of Zedekiah was from 597 to 586 B.C. 2 Chronicles uh, 36 I believe. Uh, Psalm 137 verse 7 mentions it. But I think those of you who have studied Bible history know that 586 B.C. is the year that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians uh, plundered Jerusalem. In fact, this, you know, uh, took Judah, into captivity and uh, murdered many, many people in the city as well as uh, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, taking with them all of the, uh, uh, the precious uh, uh, furniture and all of the, of the temple and taking all the gold that they could. Again, Edom assisted them. So, uh, while well, some actually date and place Obadiah as the earliest of prophets. Others place the prophecy in the days of Jeremiah. And here's the connection, and you should see it here in Jeremiah 49, verse 14. It says, I have heard a rumor from the Lord. Now, stop there and think. If, if you look at your, at your Bibles, in verse 1, it says, we have heard a rumor from the Lord. God is giving this particular prophecy both to Obadiah and to Jeremiah. And that's not a strange thing uh, that has, that often happens in, in, in biblical prophetic literature. I take for example, even in the New Testament, there are phrases, words and phrases that were given to Jude and to, and to Peter and you see it in, in, in the in the one, chapter letter of Jude the book right before the book of Revelation and you see it in 2nd Peter as well so that is something that's common and 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 there's a consistency about the way God does that God speaks to his prophets he doesn't confuse them he uh, gives them uh, prophecies that actually uh, strengthen one another uh, they're complementary they're not contradictory so You notice again, I have heard a rumor from the Lord and an ambassador is sent unto the heathen. That's exactly what Obadiah writes here. We have heard a rumor from the Lord and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. And it goes on to say, saying, gather ye together and come against her and rise up to the battle. For lo, I will make thee small among the heathen and despised among men. Thy terribleness has deceived thee and the pride of thine heart. O thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, That holdest the height of the hill, though thou shouldst make thy nest as high as the eagle, I will bring thee down from thence, saith the Lord. So just listen to that and go to Obadiah if you if you're already there, which you should be, uh, and look at verse one again of Obadiah, uh, this one chapter uh, prophecy. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God, concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, an ambassador is sent among the heathen, Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised, almost word for word with Jeremiah. The pride of thine heart has deceived thee. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down? The only thing that Jeremiah adds is in verse 16, Uh, of his prophecy where he says thy terribleness hath deceived thee here he says the pride of thine heart has deceived thee." but then then again he says and the pride of thine heart so nothing can be more terrible really than the pride of the heart of, of a people against God's people even if God's people were misbehaving which they actually were the northern kingdom of Israel and even the southern kingdom of Israel. Though this prophecy was more toward the southern kingdom than the, than the northern. Now We've seen how uh, Amos spoke to the northern kingdom. Uh, and so did the, uh, the prophets before spoke to both the northern and the southern kingdoms. Hosea, uh, Joel, uh, and uh, Amos. And now Obadiah. But before we get now into our study this evening, I'd like for us to consider some questions. And one question is, are, are there some sins that are particularly offensive to you? Let's well, just stop and think about the question. I think that all of us who pay attention to the Word of God, and we, you know, we love the Lord, we worship Him, we, we, we want to be faithful to Him in, in, in many ways. Uh, we we have to deal with we, with the issue of sin, not just in ourselves i mean that 's where it actually begins you know the the uh, um, judgment first begins like Peter says judgment first begins in the house of God I should say Paul says judgment first begins in the house of God so the question is are there some sins that are particularly offensive to you which which puts that question on the the level of are there things that others do that are offensive to you, that you know are really sins? Might there be some sins offensive to the church? Are there some sins or a sin that you can name that God finds himself chiefly offensive? As we consider the first three verses here of this prophecy of Obadiah, we will be coming face to face with a very harsh even a severe reality. And that is that God doesn't look at sin the way we do. God doesn't look at sin the way we do. There's a verse that that some of us use when, when someone doesn't have much to offer in regard to outward appearances. You might remember that Samuel went to Jesse's house looking for the next king of Israel. And may have been somewhat confused as to why God didn't want any of the first few sons that were paraded before him by Jesse. And the Lord spoke to Samuel that day. 1 Samuel 16 verse 7. We're all familiar, I think we should be familiar with this verse. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, Because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance. But the Lord looketh on the heart. Now we need to understand that this works two ways. We would all agree that God sees the good in people when we cannot see any. (laughs) We, We can look at some people and say, oh... What an idiot, you know. I say that all the time in the mirror. But you know, we can look at somebody, but God knows that person better than we do. And he sees the good in them. Oftentimes, we ought to be looking for the good in everyone. Likewise, he also sees the bad in people when we find none. This evening we're going to look specifically at the sin of pride, pride, the pride of Edom, but also the existence of pride in our own lives, in the life of the church, and even in our nation. Oh, we have a very prideful nation sometimes. We're going to come back to this subject momentarily, but let's let's consider the rest of our text first. Obadiah 1, verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God, concerning Edom. We've heard a rumor from the Lord, an ambassador and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye and let us rise up against her in battle. As I've already mentioned, last week we, we sort of identified Obadiah who came from seemingly out of nowhere by the meaning of his name, the servant of the Lord. We also considered three of the attributes of God last week. God's sovereignty, his holiness, and his love. But now let's concern ourselves with Edom. Since the book of Obadiah is a pronouncement of God's judgment on this nation, it would help us to know something about Edom. In Genesis 25, we were introduced to the man who would later have this nation named after him. He happened to be the twin brother of one whose name was Yaakov, Jacob. Both born to Isaac and to Rebekah. They were twins. Genesis 25 verses 24 through 28 gives us this description. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, that being of course Rebecca, behold there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all over like a hairy garment. (laughs) And they called his name Esau, which has to do with red, but it it has to do more like with red earth. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel. And his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old. When she bare them, 60 years old, a score is 20 years, three score years old, when she bare them, and the boys grew, and Esau was a, a cunning hunter, a man of the field, I guess you would say a man's man, and Jacob was a plain man, dwelling in tents, Kind of like, well, he's not really an outdoorsman. Probably would never go to Bass Pro Shop or Cabela's. And Isaac loved Esau. Because he did eat of his venison. But Rebecca loved Jacob. We see here how different these boys would grow up. They grow up different in appearance, in values, in ambitions, in likes and dislikes, and in that which they loved. I've known a few sets of twins, and you probably have too. Maybe you have some twins in your families. A lot of times, uh, you know, they show their distinctions from each other, But more than often, they are very similar. But not Jacob and Esau. Not at all. We hardly find, if if there's one thing that they're similar in, in in, 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 in their lives described in the scriptures, it's that they were sinners. And pretty good sinners at that. One son was daddy's favorite, the other a mama's boy. While there was no one thing that you could pin the problem on, it is obvious from the biblical record that there were years of tension between the two, the two brothers. In fact, we know, if we read earlier on from that Genesis passage, they even wrestled in Rebecca's womb. They were already in the WWF, or E, or whatever it is. They were wrestling inside of her. And she was having all kinds of conniptions, as my mom used to say. We've learned from the Genesis account of the birthright that Esau sold to Jacob that Esau despised his birthright and all that went with it. We've learned from that stolen blessing that Jacob was a deceptive man who was out for his own interests even if it meant turning his back on family and honesty. The two fought bitterly and even had to separate themselves from one another. In Genesis 28, we we read that, or we read that Isaac sent his son Jacob back to where his family was from to take a wife from among his own people. He sent his son out with blessings and great hope. But Esau knew about what was going on, so out of spite and out of anger, he chose to act out in retaliation. We read in Genesis 28, verse 6, it says, When Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram, to take him a wife from thence, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan, and that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and was gone to Padanaram." And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac, his father, then went Esau unto Ishmael and took unto the wives which he had, Mahalat, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaiot, to be his wife. And even though he did not marry a Canaanite woman at this point, he did marry into a family which God had rejected. That of the unchosen line of Ishmael. And that, whether it to appease, please, or humor his parents, he actually gave no proof, uh, proof, I should say, of lessening his vindictive malicious purposes against, against Jacob. Over time, two nations developed from the families of the two men. They were related by blood. Now stop and think for just a minute before I go on. They were related by blood, Jacob and Esau. They were related by blood. And to some extent, you go back a little further, Jacob was related to Ishmael as well because of Abraham, his grandfather. Related by blood. What you see happening in the Middle East today, that's a family feud. Jacob and Esau were related by blood, but torn apart and divided by everything else. And little love was lost between the two peoples. They did not like each other. And to this day, they still don't. Little love was lost between the two peoples just as little love had been lost between the two brothers. And while the book of Genesis records for us that the two made an attempt to make amends, the fighting continued for years to come. But it wasn't fighting between brothers anymore. It was fighting between nations. We know that God changed Jacob's name to Israel. But do you remember Esau? In Genesis 36, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom. Edom. Esau took his wives of the daughters of Canaan. Earlier on, he only took wives from the Ishmael. Now he took wives from Canaan. Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And Aholibamah, the Daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibeon, the Hivite. You jump down to verses 8 and 9 and it says, Thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Twice in this passage, it, it reminds us that Esau is the nation of Edom. And by the way, Esau and Edom are basically the same name. And these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites. In Mount Seir, we won't go on. And so Edom was the nation that grew out of a string of ungodly marriages by Esau to pagan wives that God had forbidden the Hebrews to marry. The Canaanites were idol worshipers. They believed in other gods. Their particular uh, paganism, involved human sacrifice and many other ungodly things, especially sexual things that would take place in their forbidden temples. So Esau, who was born to Isaac, the son of Abraham, went as far as he could from the ways that God wanted his people to grow and to grow in. Now, as as far as the geography of the land goes, Edom, also known as Seir, Hor, and Esau, we should have the first picture, I think. You probably can see the sides better, but I have to look at this one here. There's an area, you'll see the Dead Sea, and you'll see the name Jerusalem above the Dead Sea. I used to have a pointer. If I still do. Right in this area. And then you go a little bit further south, and here's the area of Edom and Seir. All of this, let's go to the next slide, if we could. This is modern-day uh, if you look over here this is this is Jordan and this is some parts of of the beginning of the of the Dead Sea here. So there's some towns right up in this area. Those are the mountains of Seir, you know. Next, you'll notice again this is this is where we're dealing with. Here's Jordan. Here's Israel. Here's the Jordan River. Leading into the Dead Sea. Okay. We'll come back to a couple more slides here in a sec. So this was a territory bordering, as I said, Judah to the east and south. That is, Jordan is to the east and south of Judah. So you don't get confused. Judah, of course, is the southern kingdom of Israel. So that is, it was... uh, to the east of Jordan River and extended southward from the borders of Moab to the Gulf of Aqaba. On the eastern side, uh, by the way, Gulf Gulf of Aqaba would be the very southern tip of Israel today. The very southern tip. There's one little city at the very tip. You'll notice how it comes down to a tip. It's uh, called Eilat. And it is in the desert of Israel. The very southern part of the desert of Israel. So on the eastern side, Edom was bordered by the desert. So Edom is surrounded by desert. And then the only water source, you know, there is the Jordan River, but the only other water source is, is, is dead to them, is a dead sea. It's a salt sea. It was approximately 20 to 30 miles wide and 100 miles long. Now, the northern and eastern areas of this territory contained parts fit for cultivation, But these were not what gave importance to the land. The real importance of Edom was due to two factors. First, it was situated along the great trade routes between Syria and Egypt, and let's go to the next slide here, and could profit from this trade that brought business, and the inhabitants grew rich on tolls extracted from the many caravans. The second factor was Edom's natural strength and security. So, uh, go to the next slide. There you go. So here we are. This is the modern day. You've got Egypt over here, but right through here, and then of course, if you go east of Jordan, then of course you've got Iran, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, and whatnot. So there is a trade. There was a trade route that would come through the here and and go to Egypt. Here's the Sinai, Israel, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia. So that was one of the important aspects of of uh, of uh, Edom was this uh, this trade route and the business that they could uh, get from the caravans that would come through. I said the second factor was Edom's natural strength and security because of the mountains that surrounded them and that were always around them. The central area is characterized by red sandstone cliffs that rise to the heights of more than 5,000 feet above sea level. Now, that it's red sandstone is kind of significant because, again... It comes back to the name of Edom, Esau, red, dirt. Uh, These cliffs were easily fortified. And as a result of having made their home within this natural fortress, the, the people of Edom were free to wage war and levy tribute on others while being relatively free of outside interference. This is one reason why both Obadiah and Jeremiah talk about the fact that uh, the pride of thine heart has deceived thee that thou dwellest in the clefts of the rock. They could hide in all of the clefts of the rock to surprise their enemies who were coming out to uh, destroy them or to take over their, their land. So uh, they hardly had any outside interference and if they ever did they took care of it pretty quickly. Now, it's unclear how Esau or the Edomites came to possess the land that they had inhabited. We know that by Genesis 32, Esau possessed the land called Seir. We've already seen a picture of that. That's the mountainous region as well. But after Jacob had left Laban, there would be a meeting between the brothers, Jacob and Esau, even though Jacob believed that Esau was out to kill him and his family. And eventually they met in a friendly, even loving, brotherly way. After this meeting in Genesis 33, Esau returned to the land of Edom. But now, in Numbers chapter 20, Edom appears in the story of the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt. And when they had come out of Egypt into Sinai and wanted to pass on to the promised land through Edom, the Edomites refused to give them passage, even though Moses promised to harm nothing and even pay for whatever water the people and their herds should drink. Consider Numbers 20, verses 20 and 21. And he said, thou shalt not go through. This is obviously representatives of, 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 of Esau and Edom. Thou shalt not go through, and Edom came out against him with much people and with a strong hand. You see the deep-seated uh, hatred that the, the, the Edomites had against the Israelites. And thus, Edom refused to give Israel passage through his border, wherefore Israel turned away from him. Now, when David was, many, many years later, when David was running from Saul, and it ended, ended up going to Ahimelech, the priest in Nob, for food and Goliath's sword. The spy that informed Saul of David's whereabouts was an Edomite named Doeg who would later kill 85 prophets along with their families and livestock on Saul's command. Now Saul wasn't an Edomite. Saul was an Israelite. He was, uh, in fact, I believe a Benjamite. But he hated David. David. He grew to hate David because David got all the the applause for having killed Goliath. And Saul was jealous. David then conquered the Edomites in a great battle recorded in 2 Samuel 8, verses 13 and 14, and 1 Chronicles 18, verse 20, or I'm, I'm sorry, verse 12. And from that time on, through the reign of Solomon, The Edomites were subject to the descendants of Jacob. Very much like slaves. Which, by the way, if they became subject to the Israelites, would you not think that they would become even more upset against their enemy? Even more. One writer wrote this, He said, until this time, Edom must have been thought of as Israel's elder brother and being stronger, older, and more developed. By by this battle, the elder was supplanted by the younger in clear historical analogy to the Jacob-Esau parallel in Genesis. Remember, Esau was born first. That means he would have been the firstborn. But the prophecy that came was that the firstborn would be supplanted by the younger being Jacob so from this point on one can trace the bitter uh, the bitter rivalry which is documented in the prophecy of Obadiah now during Solomon's reign as seen in first Kings chapter 11 the Lord used Hadad the Edomite to punish Solomon for his worship of false gods and who was it that tried to kill Christ as an infant it was none other than Herod. Herod was called an Idumean. Idumean. Where did that word come from? Edom. He was an Edomite. And so the beginning and history of the nation of Edom is quite fascinating. But let's look at something that God Himself says through the prophet Malachi. Malachi is the last Old Testament uh, book in the, in the Christian Bible. It is the last even chronologically, but in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Jewish uh, scriptures, in the Tanakh, uh, Malachi is within the, uh, the body of, of the, the scriptures. The last books being actually the Chronicles, the book of Chronicles. Malachi 1 verses 1 through 3 says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. So now you you might look at that and wonder about the Lord. But remember that he is the sovereign Lord, the sovereign king, and this is not the only time in scripture where the Lord expresses hatred of a people. The important thing to ask is, why did God hate Edom? Why did God hate Edom? The answer is in verses 2 and 3 of our text. Coming back to Obadiah then, In verses 2 and 3, it says, Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen, among the nations. Thou art greatly despised. And here it is. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Who's going to come and get us? nobody's come and get gotten us yet? Why did God hate Edom? It was the pride of Edom. The book of Obadiah is the only place in the scriptures where we find an explanation of why God hated Esau. It was simply, but profoundly because of pride, the pride of thine heart have deceived thee, deceived thee. God hated Edom's pride so much that he pronounced and carried out complete destruction on the nation. It is not there as a nation today and won't come back because the Lord carried out his judgment on the sin of pride. Again, how do we know this? Well, let's read, if you're if you kind of still in Malachi, in verses 4 and 5 now of, of, the, of the first chapter of Malachi, he says, Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. Take note of one thing here before we go on with what we see here in Malachi. They shall build, but I will throw down. They shall call them The border of wickedness and and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. One one thing we have to understand about the Lord being uh, sovereign is that he knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. If he knows anything, he knows that Edom would never change its heart toward him and Edom would never change its heart toward Israel. Remember always that Israel is the apple of God's eye. Now, God takes care of Israel. But he takes care of Israel two ways. He takes care of them when he has to protect them. And then he takes care of them when he has to punish them. He's no respecter of persons. I think as believers in Jesus Christ, I think we've, we've all gone through some of that ourselves. He takes care of us when we are in need of protection. But when he needs to get our attention... He takes care of us. But He does so in His love and in His mercy and grace. At times it doesn't feel real good. In fact, it hurts. Sometimes it hurts a lot. But the Lord, being gracious, also heals. we have to trust in his plans for us his plans are always better than our own no matter how you cut it most people today would not consider pride all that bad (sighs) we we live in a we live in a society you know that uh appreciates uh all kinds of professional sports and professional athletes are you know, they, they they might have game but they also have attitude. And sometimes that attitude gets out of hand, I think even recently it took place in a Monday night game, I think. Or was it Sunday night? One of those nights. Who knows? They play football every day practically. Or they just got attitude. I mean, you know, like in your face, you know. Because you got to show it. Can't let anybody run over you. Well, we might call it a lot of things, but it comes down to pride still. It's very hard to be a, a professional athlete and a, and a believer in Jesus Christ. There are many. But uh, they can tell you it's never an easy thing. So most people today would not consider pride all that bad, certainly not something for which in in the judgment of men that God would destroy an entire nation. But this says more about our light views of sin than it does about God's workings. In fact, most Christians today would argue that pride is even a sin worth fussing over. Was that all that God was upset about? Okay, pride is bad, but it's not that bad, is it? Well, we could draw up scenarios of of Christians or even Christian leaders involved with drinking or drug abuse or theft or pornography and deviant uh, deviant behaviors of all kinds and of all types. And, And how would we respond? That's why I asked you those questions earlier on. How we would consider sin. But add to that list a certain church member or church leader filled with a prideful attitude and our response would be entirely different. But the scriptures say that pride is in a word the sin of sins and is the most damning of sins. Consider, if you will, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. Proverbs 6, 16-19. These six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look. Well, it starts off right away with pride. A proud look, an arrogant look. A lying tongue. And hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift to run to, uh, in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. All of that wrapped into one package is pride. Because it centers around one person, if you will. All of these things can be found in the most prideful of a person. Proverbs 16, verse 5 says, everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. I mean, the word abomination is a powerfully strong... I mean, this is a strong, powerful word. Abomination is not just, you know, a, a level 7 out of 10. It's 12 out of 10. That's how bad it is to the Lord. And it says, an abomination to the Lord... Though hand joined in hand, he shall not be unpunished. Proud in heart. Prideful. Well, I don't want to give it away yet. Talk about it in a minute. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. What is a haughty spirit? an arrogant spirit, a conceited attitude, a conceited spirit before a fall. That's what happens. That's what pride leads to. And then Proverbs 29, verse 23. A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. We've not looked careful enough in the church at the major problem with pride. And we haven't looked as carefully as we needed to look at the humility of the heart as a believer. We kind of sit in between But we need to get serious about both sides. Serious about what pride truly is. How destructive it is. And what an abomination it is to the Lord. And we need to realize today that the most important thing for us as believers is to be humble. Humble of heart. For us it began in the garden, didn't it? The pride of the serpent. The serpent's pride of questioning God's word. The serpent's pride in calling God a liar. The serpent's pride in changing the hearts of the two people who were created by God himself. Man out of the dust of the ground. The woman out of the sight of man. And even before creation, God would record what Lucifer would proudly say. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. I believe I read this this past weekend in our dealings with Gnosticism. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, notice where, in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I want you to count the I wills here. There's five of them. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon, also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Simply stated, pride is the attitude of life that declares its ability to live without God. May I say that again? So I don't want you to miss this. Simply stated, pride is the attitude of life that declares its ability to live without God. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 101, verse 5. It says, whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. You know, in other words, whoso secretly slanders his neighbor. What does that mean? You know that many times we'll talk about somebody behind their back, but you know what? God says they'll cut him off. I would be concerned about that. Him that hath a high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. Now we have to understand a little bit of of the word suffer here in the King James. We hear the word used by Jesus. Suffer the little children to come unto me. Don't resist the children to come unto me. Don't keep them from coming. So he says, him that hath a high look and a proud heart will not I suffer, not let them come unto me. These are hard words, but it gives us an understanding of what it is first that God loves and what it is that God hates. Now the Edomites were proud. They were proud for several reasons, but we're going to deal with that later. But but before we get to all of that, hope that I that uh, that you'll allow God to search your heart for any hints of pride in your own life. I, I hope that we all together will allow God to search our hearts. I I, I know this isn't going to be up in in the. Uh, in the slide, but but I need I need to read it to you. It's 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 the very end of of Psalm one hundred thirty nine, and and uh, I think most of us should know it. It's verses twenty three and twenty four. It says, "Search me, O God, and know my heart; try me or test me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting." That's that's something that we all need to do. that will allow God to search our hearts for any hints of pride in our life. You've no doubt heard of the lady who was aboard the Titanic and asked asked a crewman if the ship really was unsinkable. And the crewman responded, God himself could not sink this ship. Oops. Just the wrong word to say. God himself could not sink this ship. I have to say my mom was born on the day that the Titanic was, <laughs> was <laughs> I'm going right down she was as tough as the Titanic herself yeah the same day in April of in 1912 now you really know I'm kind of old a similar spirit prevailed in Edom It was as if they were saying to God, God, you can't sink this ship. We're strong. We're too strong. Believing that God himself could not bring them low, they were deceived by their pride. The words of James in James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10 says, But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. He resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. See, if we submit ourselves to God, where are we going to be? High above him? Or are we going to be on our faces before him? I would venture to say we need to be on our faces before God. Resist the devil and he will flee flee from you. Draw, Draw nigh to God, which means draw near to God, and he will draw near to you or draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. James is writing this to the church. If you go back to the beginning of James chapter chapter 4, I mean, he comes down... Awfully heavy on this on the church that is receiving this this letter, even to the point of calling them adulterers and adulteresses. I mean, that's a strong admonition. But he says, "But God gives more grace. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble." So how do we see this? Passage in for us tonight as we will begin to s- stop here with, this, with these words, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Christianity is an interesting way of life. To go up, you must go down. To live, you must die. To have all the treasures that God wants you to have, you must give everything you have. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus came and taught us. contained in flesh Jesus was still sovereign he is still superior and perfect in all of his ways so in our struggle let's surrender in our pride Let's die.